Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back, everyone, to the show. Now, you might remember my next guest, Dr. Benjamin Wetzel. We had an awesome talk about Theodore Roosevelt and religion a few months back. So why is Ben back on the show? Well, he's got another book out. That's right. Ben has published two books in one year. And for those of you that have published a book or multiple books, you might know how incredible that is. And for those of you that have not yet published a book, it must be shockingly prolific. I don't want to make Ben blush, but each book is a major contribution to the literature on the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. His book on Theodore Roosevelt takes a look at the president's religiosity and his pan-Christian morality. He really is changing the, the historiography about Roosevelt and where his inspiration for politics and for his personal life came from. Surprisingly, historians have not written much about that, and certainly not since the 1920s. Ben's latest book is called American Crusade, Christianity, Warfare, and National Identity from 1860 to 1920. It's a look at the major wars of the period, which include the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, and World War I, and the ways that ministers and religious figures interpreted American involvement, whether they advocated for military force or whether they plumped for pacifism. What makes it so important is that it weaves together ideas about nationalism and religion, notions of identity, from the national to the personal, and it explains how Christian preachers contributed to public opinion about America's place in the world. Did Americans put the cross above the flag? Or was patriotism more important than faith? Ben explores mainline Protestant ministers, evangelicals, and Catholics to show the similarities and differences between these Christian faiths. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here again. And um, I was just saying, I hope we get this in one take. Uh, the listeners won't know this, but the last time you were on, you heroically did a full retake of the entire show because there was some sort of recording error. And I promise it's, well, I'm saying this, I promise. I hope it goes smoother this time. All right, first off, let me give you an opportunity to say how you came to this topic. The book is called American Crusade, Christianity, Warfare, and National Identity, 1860 to 1920. Uh, if you could just say a little bit about how you came to the topic and what drew you to the Gilded Age of Progressive Era. Sure. Well, I've always had an interest in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Um, even going back to middle school and high school, I guess, where sometimes that era is overlooked in favor of, you know, World War II. You kind of jump from the Civil War to World War II and kind of leave out things in the middle. But I was kind of always interested in things in the middle. And the origins of this project were in my master's thesis at Baylor University, where I was just doing some primary source research on the Spanish-American War. I didn't know all that much about it, wanted to know more about how um, religious commentary um, affected the Spanish-American War, and just came across these comments from these ministers that were just astounding to me, that were equating the kingdom of God with the United States, were giving all kinds of religious sanctions to warfare. And I just wanted to understand that mentality as much as I could. Um, I didn't agree with it, and I don't think you know hardly anybody does today, but I wanted to understand why these progressive ministers 
thought this way about foreign affairs and thought this way about warfare and about the character of the United States opened up all kinds of questions for me about the meaning of America and the role of religious Americans within it and the ways that um, nation, nationality, nationalism, and Christianity have been blended. And I think the height of that was in the Gila Day Progressive Era. Um, so that was a start um, that fed into my doctoral dissertation at Notre Dame and then through a lot of edits afterward into this book of Cornell. Well, it's interesting because I know when I was reading about the period, Uzziah Strong and the idea of uh, a sort of Christian mission in the world certainly was a point of interest in my own readings. But let's start yours at the beginning because this book starts in 1860. Um, what makes religion, and let's start, I guess, with the, with, the, with the big idea. What makes religion important for the study of U.S. diplomacy and warfare? Yeah, um, I think the short answer is we're very anachronistic. If we don't take religion as one of the central um, acting forces in this time period, um, I'm just <laughs> about a third of the way through reading right now Mark Knowles' latest book, 850-some pages, uh, America's book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization. And for the first half of the 19th century, he's just able to show how interwoven everything Bible was <laughs> and everything else that happened in American life. That's certainly the true all the way through the Civil War era, that if we want to understand how people thought about slavery, how they thought about nationalism, how they thought about warfare itself, uh, for many Americans, it came back to some kind of at least residual Protestant understanding of those sorts of things. So religion was everywhere in this period. And when you're talking about in the Civil War, over, over 700,000 soldiers killed, that kind of mass carnage demanded religious explanations. What was God doing in this? Would those soldiers go to heaven? Um, how did we understand America's place and divine and providential destiny? So we might look at warfare today and think about it in purely sort of real politic terms or kind of geopolitical strategy, but um, in the Gilded Age and even a little bit back before that in the Civil War era, religion was absolutely essential to how I would say the vast majority of Americans began to interpret something like um, this fratricidal conflict. Yeah, I think it probably says a lot more about historians than it does about history or the past, I guess, is that, you know, it's been written by people that mightn't have been as uh, religious or uh, spiritual even um, as, as they, they were back then. But as I was reading, something else became really evident. How a minister preaches about war says something about their beliefs and their idea of the value of human life. So how did Christian ministers advocate for war and yet tell their parishioners that they respected their existence? I mean, I guess Jesus and sacrifice must factor in there somehow, but there is this sort of paradox almost, isn't there, about the value of human life and then sending people off to war? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, and I opened the book on the very first page with a quotation from Bill Dwight Hillis, who was the second successor to Henry Ward Beecher at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. And Hill is saying in response to some peace proposals during World War I that too much stress has been laid on the value of human life. And that everything great in the world has been accomplished through martyrdom. So um, yes, you have a specifically Christian um, notion at play with martyrdom and sacrifice, going back to the atonement, going back to Jesus on the, the cross, dying in the service of a greater enterprise, something like that. Um, you also have a broadly Christian culture that just um, assimilates those ideas. And then you have, I think, a Victorian idea, too, of duty and of laying down your own interests in the sense of a greater cause. So, yes, I think there is a paradox <laughs> in Christian ministers encouraging and in some cases like Beecher's congregation in the Civil War sponsoring a regiment, paying for their outfitting and equipment and so forth. Um, and then also, supposedly, the guardians of individual dignity and what we might call human rights. Um, but for them, and you know, Theodore Roosevelt usually says it best that you know, uh, righteousness above peace, and that at the end of the day, you stand up for your principles. Or as Wilson said in his um, address to Congress, asking for war in 1917, the right is more precious than than peace. And so, at the end of the day, if it's human life or if it's righteousness and duty. Victorians are going to go with righteousness of duty. 
That's brilliant. I mean, it's the, the whole book is full of these paradoxes, though. I mean, it starts off, as you say, and, and by the way, well done on getting so many personalities and preachers into this book. It's not it's not a massive book. It's, you know, what, what are we talking about? 200 pages. But you managed to cram in a number of people. And and in terms of paradoxes, there's two main ones. So I think there's that that one about human dignity and value. And then there's the other one about nationalism. If the United States is God's country, then how do religions account for differing visions about the, the national mission? Like the Civil War offers probably the starkest case in point on that, where there are ideas of righteousness and they vary by section or state. But that whole paradox about the national identity and vision for the future seems to be wrapped up with religion as well. Yes, yes. Um, certainly true for religion. And I really only tackle Christianity in this book. I don't really talk about Judaism or professed non-believers or things like that. I don't even include Mormonism really in this. So even just within Christianity, there's so many differing views of what constitutes the Christian nation and whether or not the United States is a Christian nation. Um, the main narrative thread through the book is kind of what I call the white Protestant mainline churches. And these are typically Northeast heavy, New York City and Boston play major roles here. Um, they're typically um, led by progressive ministers who by the late 19th century have assimilated textual biblical criticism, Darwinism, who think of themselves as up-to-date, the social gospel. Um, and they're the most nationalistic and enthusiastic about warfare and empire. Um, but then I try to contrast them um, with other groups in the Christian tradition. So Black Methodist commentary on the Civil War um, was interesting and in some ways sounded a lot like the white Protestant mainline, like Beecher um, and Horace Bushnell, but also, as you would expect, had a different, what I call a kind of counterpoint flavor to that as well. Much more attuned to the sufferings of slaves, much more attuned to the ways in which the United States failed to live up to its ostensibly Christian mission. And then you just kind of see that same story repeated as I look at Catholic commentary on the Spanish-American War, Again, some of which sounded just like the mainline Protestants, but a number of which were very concerned that the United States was fighting a Catholic power in Spain, that we were a nation of Protestant schismatics and not authentic Christians, um, and that in some cases, maybe even Spain was the more righteous country. And then you follow that up one more time with World War I, as I look at Missouri Synod Lutherans, many of whom were still German-speaking in their congregations and their schools, and who has specific theological reasons, but also social reasons, to just have a different perspective on the character of the United States um, that were pretty parochial, pretty inward-centered in their communities, not really aspiring to national leadership, um, and thus, again, more critical um, of the United States as a Christian nation, as inherently righteous, more supportive of Germany, only grudgingly accepting the war when, it, when, it, when the United States came into it. And, 1917. And so, yes, to get back to your point, uh, there's this idea of America as a Christian nation, very common in kind of mainline and evangelical Protestant circles. But even within the spectrum of Christianity, there's a lot of diversity about how um, American Christians were thinking about those wars, thinking about whether they were righteous or not, and thinking about what God was or was not doing in them. Yeah, that's a great summary of the book uh, and the, the, the chapters. I, I want to delve into each of them because I think they they can tell us a lot more about the United States in this period. And, and let's start with the Civil War, because I often think that there's no period in American history that has a more granular historiography. And what I mean by that is that historians have churned over the Civil War years probably more than any other period in American history. Or maybe that's just my my sense of what I see on, on Twitter and in the books that are published. But there are debates about whether ministers called for or rejected calls for war, the Civil War. And so, so which is it? Did God lead the Union troops or not? <laughs> um, yeah, I think for both North and South, the answer was yes. And again, this book, again, well, things it doesn't do, I don't talk about the South really at all in there. It's just kind of focused on the Northern commentary here. Um, yeah, uh, the historiography of the Civil War and religion has really picked up in the last maybe 15 years or so. Um, Mark Knowles' The Civil War is a Theological Crisis has been important. Um, George Rabel's God's Almost Chosen People is a really 
Systematic Religious History of the Civil War, and then Harry Stout's um, interesting book, On the Altar of a Nation, really looks at the Civil War from a moral point of view. So I used all those um, to kind of buttress or at least kind of frame the arguments that I'm making here. But um, for the characters uh, in chapter one, which are Lyman Abbott, who's just a young minister at this time, and then more well-known figures, Henry Ward Beecher and Horace Bushnell, there's very little question that God is providentially raising up and purifying a Christian nation through this. Um, Beecher is the most confident, maybe, of the three, and his comments, especially at after Union victory, are just astonishing. If you look at Lincoln's second inaugural, in which he's very humble and very theological, very biblical, and very uh, nonpartisan in his reflections on what God did or did not do through the war, um, Lincoln's somewhat agnostic about that. The Almighty has his own purposes, and they can't be reduced to um, we were right and they were wrong. You compare that speech to what Bush to what Beecher gives at Fort Sumter in 1865 at the re-raising of the American flag. It's just the most sort of purple prose. He has this paragraph where he's envisioning Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee being plunged down into hell by God because of uh, the treason that they've committed. Um, Beecher is the most confident that God is leading uh, the nation. And I think that's true as a broad statement about the Northern Protestant clergy. And it's certainly true about the Southern Protestant clergy too, although I haven't done all the primary source primary source research in that. The interesting contrast then is with the African-American leadership. Um, and I don't mean to, I don't know if that's where your next question is. I it absolutely to... was, it was exactly, okay, you could okay, read okay, my I'll mind. That you. was perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if you noticed, I had the pleasure of interviewing Christina Dickerson cousin, who's got a book out about the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Yeah. Um, it was a few weeks back and, and your book covers this as well. And that's exactly where I was going. How do they differ from other Christian sects on the issue of war and what can they teach us about nationalism and faith, especially this idea about uh, providentialism. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was very interesting to read the Christian Recorder, which was almost exclusively my source base for that chapter. So it was this um, periodical published by the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church, um, headquartered in Philadelphia, and um, reaching a pretty wide audience. I mean, I would say mostly Northern, mostly free, um, but extended to um, at least a few places in the South, as far as California in some instances. Um, and the way that, that the, those editors, but then also the letters to the editor, reflected on the Civil War over the course of the four years. There was a lot of change over time. There was a lot of um, what we would maybe call real-time reflection on what was happening. And in some ways, again, they, they sounded like Henry Ward Beecher, obviously very anti-slavery, very anti-Southern, hoping for Union victory, but evolving over time on their place as they saw within the American nation. Early on, the editor, Elisha Weaver, um, discourages African-Americans from, I mean, not that they can't enlist in the army at that point, but discourages them from you know, even wanting to because we're not really constituted, we're not given a place in this nation anyway, this is not our battle. Daniel Alexander Payne, one of the bishops, says the same thing in 1862, that we shouldn't meddle in this conflict. This is between kind of white America and, you know, we're going to stay out of it. But that really changes, especially after 1863, after the Emancipation Proclamation, and after African-Americans are able to enlist in the Northern Army. You get to get, you start getting these letters from soldiers um, who are on the front and who are writing back home, talking about their experiences. And there's just this kind of real-time evolution over what can this nation be. And in at least one case, there's a writer who early on is an advocate of colonization, um, back to Africa movement, that by 1865 is saying, we're, we're, we're never going to leave this land. This is our land just as much as it is white people's land. And okay, we don't have full promise in Lincoln and what he's doing. We don't have, you know, naive confidence in the United States and equality. but he saw enough <laughs> that he wanted to remain in the United States. So it's interesting, again, this is from a Black Methodist point of view um, and the ways for, for providentialism, since you asked about that. Sometimes they sounded like um, the Northerners and being very confident. 
But other times they were much more hesitant and say, it's actually hard to identify what God is doing in a situation like this. And the prayers of our Southern opponents, that they're more to be feared than their prowess on the battlefield, that a sense that maybe the other side is Christian in some sense too. Um, and that's a lot different from what some of the Northern white ministers said, who basically rejected that the South was, was Christian at all. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow, um, there's so much to unpack there too, uh, even about the reach of where some of these churches uh, go to and how that sectionalism plays into ideas about national identity. I was also wondering how American Protestant ministers justified the war against Spain. I know we're moving forward here at a pace, you know, 30 years, but it seems like there's, well, first of all, your chapter is structured differently here because you're talking about Catholicism and Spain, and that's really interesting as well. You also spent some time talking about the social gospel. So tell us a little bit about how the ministers justify the war in Spain with those two, uh, those two key frameworks that you use. Yeah, so again, I kind of start then with kind of the white Protestant mainline, and I unpack a number of factors of why I think that they were supportive of this. And the first was a sense of American providentialism, that God had a special place for the United States, that at this time of global context of world empire, we're being raised to our rightful place in the world, um, that we're a specially chosen nation. I mean, in, in traditional Christian terms, this is idolatrous, but this is kind of what they're, what they're putting forth. There's also a sense of um, democratic Christian republicanism, um, that uh, we are virtuous people, Therefore, we're going to be blessed. Um, the Spaniards are vicious. Therefore, they're losing battles. And then maybe more, more importantly than that, there's a social gospel element to it. And I think listeners to this podcast will be familiar with the basic outline of the social gospel in this period, of the sense of trying to remake society along Christian lines, following the principles of the New Testament, which sometimes led to support for labor reforms, um, anti-capitalist kind of critique of the economy. Um, sometimes racial reform, but it also had this maybe ironic extension into foreign policy. 
that just as we're going to remake the United States into a Christian nation, why stop there? That there's a whole globe to remake here. And when we defeat Spain, when we extend American rule to the Philippines, when we crush the barbarous hand that has been strangling Cuba for all these centuries, we're actually extending the kingdom of God. And this leads to all these kinds of paradoxes and ironies. I mean, the, the, the chapter title, I use a quote there from someone who's saying, this is a war of mercy, right? a war of mercy, right? That, again, it's, it's rich in these sort of contradictions, but that's their way of thinking that when we extend American rule, when we extend democracy, um, even if that's maybe going to come centuries later, and if we have to have American rule in the Philippines in the meantime, that's much better than Spain, and we are extending in some ways the rule of the kingdom of God around the world. Catholics what? are much more, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, go ahead, uh, go, because you, you didn't touch on the Catholic side of things, I'd love to hear what you have to say about yeah. that. Um, Catholics, uh, some of them view it the same way, especially in general, the more Americanist Catholics, the more progressive Catholics, those who are really not all that concerned about the separation of church and state, who like American arrangements, who are a little more distant from um, the Pope and from the ultramontane parties in the Catholic church, uh, they sound like Lyman Abbott, they sound like Washington Gladden, they sound like some of these social gospel ministers. John Ireland is maybe the best example of this, one of the few Republicans in Catholic leadership, the Archbishop of Minneapolis, St. Paul, associate of William McKinley. He's talking about the expansion of America worldwide and so forth. Um, so that's kind of one point of view. But then there's also what I think is a more dissenting um, Catholic view, a more interesting dissenting Catholic view, where I look at the editors of some smaller um, publications in a place like St. Louis, in a place like um, South Bend, Indiana, um, and others where they're, the, these editors are much more critical of the idea that America is actually a Christian nation, because what, what they see is Protestant schismatics who can't agree on anything and who aren't legitimate Christians in some sense. Um, they see Spain as not perfect, but who's done a lot for the world, who's raised up, you know, in their view, kind of Western civilization, and uh, who is more victim than aggressor in this whole conflict. Um, and they're just, they just often, they, in some sense, they, they point out, or sometimes they point out even lynching as one of these flaws in America that people don't want to talk about. And so they just got this outsider's mentality and this outsider's perspective on the idea um, of America and its meaning. And so there's a theological component there to it, but there's also this kind of social component to it that we're on the margins of American life, we're not at the centers of power. Um, it's not been all that long since the formation of the American Protective Association. It's not been all that long since the burning of a convent in the you know, antebellum era in Boston, and they're kind of the legatees of some of this ancestral anti-Catholicism that's prevalent in American culture. And so um, that band is much more critical of the war. And my book isn't so much about who's right and who's wrong, but just the different perspectives that it gives on the character of the United States at this time, at this very important time in its history as it rises to become a world power, as it takes kind of those first steps, as it develops a foreign empire for the first time. So the, the Catholic perspective is revealing, I think. I, I couldn't agree more. I think the Catholic perspective is hugely revealing and not actually dissected enough in other books about the Spanish-American War. Uh, yet what I was thinking about, this is an entirely unfair question because your book doesn't deal with it. And I just went to the index to double check and make sure that you don't mention the Boers, which you don't. And I'm talking about the Boer War. But the reason why I ask about it is, is, is that this is a war that preachers in the U.S. are talking about it at the time. I don't actually know what they're saying, but I know Catholic preachers are certainly talking about it. The Irish are very vocal about, uh, about the Boers and, and support of the Boers against the British. I wondered what some of the other ministers were saying, or if you came across any rhetoric, because this is a conflict that is outside of the United States in some ways, at least in terms of its interests in Africa, and yet it is so central to the public consciousness of wars in the late 19th century. Any, any uh, readings on what the ministers are saying about that war? Yeah, um, I'll probably have to plead ignorance there a little bit just because it's been a little too long since I've been deeply, deeply in those primary sources. But what I you're, did you're say it was out, unfair. I'm really sorry. Yeah. It is, it, it's not fair on me. Um, but you're, you're pointing out the global issues that Americans are very much aware of. And I think 
probably because of missionaries that the American Christians are especially aware of in this time. So whether you're talking about Africa, whether you're talking about the Boxer Rebellion or something like that in Asia, um, we might have a stereotype of especially conservative Christians as being narrow and parochial and need to be more cosmopolitan. They're actually some of the more cosmopolitan people in this time because of the missionary interest. How interesting. Yeah, brilliant. Well, the War of 1898 gives us a chance to think about religion and American imperialism, as you say, um, although I guess the Civil War does too, and the genocide of Native Americans. But in 1898, the question about empire seems really explicit. And it's there. there is a real popular debate going on in, in public at this time. Uh, so how is that how is that debate framed in 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 uh, religious circles? And I mean, specifically, you have the the, the rise of this sort of like imperial uh, mindset. You could you could put that associate with a lot of Americans at that time in, in government, perhaps. But you, could, you also have this anti-imperialist movement that you talk about as well. And so how does that play out in religious circles? Yeah, good question. In my research and I'm happy to be corrected by a listener, but in, in my research, I can find almost nobody, and maybe I can even say nobody, who's a prominent religious spokesperson who opposes the Spanish-American War. Now, I guess I have to backtrack and say probably Quakers, probably Mennonites, but those are pretty marginal groups in 1898. It's almost unanimous, at least among Protestants that the Spanish-American War has to come and that it's righteous. Empire is a little bit different. Empire, there's much more division, even among some of those who believe the Spanish-American War was legitimate, they backtrack on empire. And I think William Jennings Bryan is an example of someone who I quote in there who um, is not for subjugating foreign nationals really under any circumstances. Um, even within yeah, those who are championing the war, some of them are nervous for various reasons about American empire. Um, I'm thinking of the country broadly, but I think this would apply to the religious spoken too. Some are racist and don't want to incorporate kind of non-white peoples into the United States. Some are concerned about abandoning our traditions of being a colonizer instead of, you know, one who escaped from colonization in 1776. Um, even some of the Catholics, who are willing to stomach the Spanish-American War, they're really nervous about colonizing the Philippines. And for them, there is a specific religious component to that because that means that the Spanish friars are gonna go and that these Protestant missionaries are gonna take their place in the Philippines. And they're, so there's a religious layer there to their opposition too. Um, Black Methodists, I found a little bit of commentary on that. They were mostly opposed to empire. Um, they were, um, concerned about, again, subjugating people of color outside the United States as well as subjugating them inside the United States. And so that whole debate about empire, which you've written about and what you know a lot about, um, is interesting when looked at from the religious angle too. And it does differ somewhat from some people could justify war, but then they did, um, they did balk at actually colonizing the lands that, the, that we had acquired through that war. I think that's the real interesting distinction in your book is that there's this perception of Cuba as being a humanitarian disaster that the United States is coming to save. And there is a, again, there's that narrative about the value of human life. Um, but of course the empire, you know, ministers weren't thinking about the Philippines. The public wasn't thinking about the Philippines in 1898. They only came, came, come to think of that really in, uh, well, the, the end of that year and maybe the beginning of 1899. Brilliant stuff. Well, tell us a little bit also about how your book deals with class and gender, because there are two themes that are running through this, and you talk a lot about social location and social station. So maybe you could start with those yeah. two words. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm mostly an ideas guy, and I put most of the analysis into thinking about theology and into thinking about these ideas like the social gospel and American providentialism and how People really believed that they were advancing the kingdom of God by supporting these wars. But I'm also um, not blind to the fact that there's more earthly factors at play here, too. And that can be gender, that can be class, that can be race, and it can also be a geographical location, I found in this book. So here I've been influenced by um, Jackson Lears, by Kristen Hoganson, Gail Biederman, 
um, some of those kind of classic books on the imperial era. And you know, all, all you have to do is read T.R. Strenuous like speech to see that there's a whole lot of race and gender going on there in this brief and this advocacy for the United States taking its place in, 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 in the world. So at the end of the day, I don't think that is the single explanatory factor, especially because I found it to be there less maybe in the writings of ministers than it is in a place like the strenuous life. But look, you're talking about white Protestant men in a place like Boston and New England. Those are Boston and New York. Those are kind of the main characters in the odd number chapters of this book. And yeah, they're they're looking around. They're seeing an increasingly secular nation. Um, they're seeing massive immigration from Europe. Um, they've been in that generation that hasn't seen, you know, a kind of serious war since the Civil War. Who are concerned about masculinity? Who are concerned about the fighting virtues? And some of them too view, I think, the, the Spanish-American War and certainly World War One too, as um, a chance for this generation of American men to prove themselves. This is part of the YMCA, that kind of muscular Christianity movement that happens at that time. Um, Richmond Hobson is one of the heroes of the Spanish-American War. Um, he was, a, I think, a past president of his YMCA chapter, and that's kind of built up in some of the, the religious press as they're looking at him. That Yes, we are still producing these manly Protestant men who can go and fight wars and save a nation in distress. I don't know if that's like a damsel in distress with Cuba, right? With some of these things. Um, so that's definitely there. Um, it's 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 covered, but I don't think for the people I'm looking at, it's maybe the thing that they lead with. I think the ideology is a little bit more important. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's many of the ministers in your book that are coming from uh, backgrounds that are all too different, though. Maybe we're talking about some ethnic differences. We're certainly talking about differences in terms of race with the AME, but a lot of the mainline ministers seem to be from the same kind of background. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Um, I tried where possible to bring in as much regional diversity, um, but, you know, as, as, as I could find, but Lyman Abbott is probably the main character in here. He was the kind of the real subject in my MA thesis and doctoral dissertation. He's in New York City. I mean, he's born in New England, but he's a New Yorker, basically, for all of his adult life. Washington Gladden is in Columbus, Ohio, so a little bit more Midwest. Um, you know, Beecher's in New York, Bushnell's in Connecticut, Hillis is in New York. Um, I think I bring in something from Chicago in there. So it's mostly North, it's mostly Northeast, um, spiced with a little bit of um, South and kind of far West where I can find it. But um, you are talking about, yeah, somewhat homogenous group of white mainline ministers, which is what we would expect. Yeah, uh, Lyman Abbott is also uh, probably the only other person to write about Theodore Roosevelt and religion with with you being the only other exception. And of course he wrote that book in I think 1920 and yours came nearly a hundred years after that. So there was quite a big gap and it probably shows that we haven't been talking enough about religion in the last 100 years in, in history. Um, all right, look, we'd be remiss if we didn't get on to World War One, which is where your book actually starts, but uh, is obviously a very important part. It seems like an interesting context as well for examining nationalism and faith. Um, uh, given that the United States, uh, the United States remained neutral until 1917, how do preachers craft their homilies before the war and then after it? And is there a contrast in the rhetoric that they have before 1917 and after? Yeah, there is. Um... I found, again, maybe this isn't shocking, but I, I found that when war is being debated, there's room for disagreement. But when war is actually declared, whether that's April 1898, whether it's April 1917, um, you better get on board if you're going to make it in the country at that particular time. And so the Missouri Synod Lutherans, who I look at in chapter six, they're very divided about the war beforehand, mostly neutral, some a little more pro-Germany um, all the way through 1914, 15, 16. But once war is declared in April 1917, explicit opposition to the war pretty much stops. And partly that has to do with their theology that you have to submit to the governing authorities and we have to do what we're told. Romans 13 is a really important text, a really important biblical chapter for them in that regard. Um, and so if the United States is going to war, then we're going to have to go to war, and they start to change their tune and start to 
not nearly the way as the white mainline Protestants do, but they, they, they start to trumpet their involvement and their service in that way. Um, but they're never all that enthusiastic about it. You can kind of read between the lines in there. And of course, that has a lot to do with their social location. They are mostly in Missouri, mostly in the broader Midwest, again, still German speaking, not at all the centers of power. And it gives them just a different perspective on the nation. So that's a change. Um, I don't talk about Pentecostals too much in here, uh, but Grant Wacker's book, Heaven Below, he looks at Pentecostal kind of apoliticism, the change to support by kind of 1917, 1918. Same thing is true in George Marston's Fundamentalism in American Culture, where he looks at kind of hardcore fundamentalists and people who are expecting Christ's return, how they kind of change their tune once war is actually declared, once liberty loans are being kind of bought and sold. Um, but there were some clergy, again, like Lyman Abbott, who's, again, a close associate of Theodore Roosevelt, um, who think that uh, the Allies are right from the very beginning and who are championing preparedness, who are um, uh, critical of Wilson for not doing enough and who can't wait for us to finally get into the war and then who are over the top, um, to use a World War I phrase, um, enthusiastic about it when... Um, the U.S. finally gets in in April 1917. But the preparedness advocates, I think they're in the minority early on, um, although I focus on Abbott and his outlook a lot. But once war is declared, um, look, you're facing um, jail time. You're, you're facing the Sedition Act. If you're outspoken about it, um, your opposition afterward, look at Debs or you know someone like that, what happened to him. Um, so people get on board pretty, pretty, pretty quickly once war is actually declared. And this interesting historiographical note, the first real treatment of this is from the early 1930s, this sociologist Ray H. Abrams, who wrote this book, Preachers Present Arms. And for him, it's all about social control. It's all about the Wilson administration, the propaganda campaign, you know, kind of coercing these churches and forcing them to do it. But uh, there's a lot more genuine enthusiasm for it. For some of these guys, then they, they didn't need Wilson or Creel or anybody to kind of tell them they had to be patriotic. They were more than happy to do it. And Abbott fits into that camp. So it is Bill Dwight Hillis um, and their social gospel people. And this is like the apotheosis of what they've hoped for for a long time, a chance to actually remake the world. And Richard Gamble's War for Righteousness is a great book that really explains that mentality even more than I'm able to do in this, this chapter. So there's some social control, but there's some who are pre-existing <laughs> patriots and who just think that, okay, we remade Spain and empire in 1898. Now we're going to do Europe in 1917, 1918. And of course, then they're, they're vastly disappointed by some of them from the way the world turns out in the twenties and afterward. But the young guys especially are, yeah, they're kind of seeing this as the war to end all wars, all that height of Victorian optimism that we have a hard time because we see the World War I from the other side. We have a hard time seeing it from <laughs> the <clears throat> before the end, but um, they were just so optimistic about, and even millennial about what the world could be. That's an interesting uh, term, millennial. I think it's something that you can see in some of the foreign policy of the United States as well, remaking the world for a new millennium. I just wondered, were parishioners disillusioned with the preachers though? I mean, if the preachers before the war, and obviously, as you said, Lyman Abbott was, calling for preparedness and even intervention. But for those that weren't, I mean, they're talking about the trauma of the Great War for three years and parishioners are listening to them go on about Swampfoot or as you said, over the top and, you know, no man's land. And it is a, it's a gruesome, a gruesome war that now they're, they're, they're turning on their heads and saying, we, we have to do it. Is there any sort of loss in faith? Do you, do you get a sense that parishioners are disillusioned? Yeah. Um... Always a little harder to tell for um, those who aren't publishing as much. The book I've been maybe influenced by the most is Jonathan Ebel's book, Faith in the Fight. It looks at religion and the American soldier in World War I, and he's able to look at the Stars and Stripes and some of these other kinds of publications that soldiers are writing for. And if, if I recall correctly, um, what he found is they often echoed the sentiments of their pastors back home, that they shared some of these same kind of millennial beliefs, although I think certainly there has to be disillusionment for some of them as they encounter the trenches, as they, you know, are gassed and these, these kinds of horrors that come. Um, I think broadly, 
the lost generation response is true for the 20s, um, but it would be interesting to trace those soldiers' responses, the veterans' responses in the 20s as they look at the world the war brought, maybe versus the one they thought it was going to bring. And I think Ebel's book is just kind of limited to the, the Great War itself. That, that would be a place for further research to see, and maybe it's out there, but veterans and how they were processing through the stuff in the 1920s. I'm gonna kind of end with some ministers who repented for their jingoism during World War I, Harry Emerson Fosdick, prominent New York minister, um, eventually I think preaches at that church that John D. Rockefeller Jr. built in Manhattan, um, Riverside. Yeah, he's the, he's the pastor at, uh, at Riverside for a long time, an opponent of World War II, kind of pacifist by that point because he was so enthusiastic about World War I and because he saw what hadn't turned out the way that he was promised it would be. Reinhold Niebuhr would be another important American theologian who shrinks from some of this Protestant liberalism that had just easily assimilated Christianity and democracy and saw them as two sides of the same coin and America kind of right in the middle. Niebuhr by the 20s and 30s is moving away from that into a more kind of neo-Orthodox perspective where he's not a fundamentalist by any stretch of the imagination, but he's much more realistic about what war really does and what's possible in human affairs and the reality and prevalence of sin and fallenness in people's lives. Um, I think, again, historian George Marsden has said that sin is one of the few theological doctrines that's empirically proven. <laughs> and you just look at what people have done throughout time, that there's sin. And a lot of these progressive ministers were so optimistic about improvements in the 19th century, reforms, social Darwinism, that they really lost that sense of sin and fallenness and limits. And Niebuhr was able to kind of bring that back. Again, he had been, he said, more than ordinarily patriotic during the Great War by the 20s and 30s and into the post-war period, yeah, post-World War II period. He's much more a spokesman for at least some aspect of traditional Christianity and the fact that perfection isn't going to happen. Utopianism isn't going to happen because people are just sinners at the end of the day, and they need redemption through Jesus Christ. You know, I was going to ask about Niebuhr, but I actually, there's there's presumably a legacy from these ministers that you write about into the 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe even onwards as well. But And Niebuhr is obviously one of them, but can you tell us a little bit about the legacy, maybe other sort of uh, strains of thought that you see, you know, reaching back to either the 1860s or World War One, and then continuing on. Yeah, the Protestant liberalism continues apace throughout all that period. Gary Dorian's three-volume history of kind of American progressive theology is really important for my understanding of that. Um, from a traditional Christian perspective, they get they just get more and more detached from kind of what would be considered historic Christian orthodoxy. The interesting change vis-a-vis -vis politics in the United States is that that Christian nationalism fades over time. And I did not do extensive research on World War II, but I wanted to do a little bit of comparison at the end of the book um, because in World War II, you don't have the same enthusiasm from the Protestant mainline about the righteousness of the conflict that you did in these earlier three wars that I did write about. And that to me um, was very interesting because World War II to me, seems more of a slam dunk case of right and wrong. I mean, you've got the attack on Pearl Harbor, you've got the Nazis, you've got Holocaust, right? But they weren't so convinced that that was a crusade the same way that they were with the Civil War and the Spanish-American War, World War One. And part of that has to do with the excesses, I think, of 1917 and 1918, of a sense of embarrassment, of being caught up in that wartime hysteria. Fosdick, in this article in the Christian Century in 1928, said that the church had become the mere echo of the warring masses, and that that was problematic, that the church needed to be more prophetic, it needed to stand more apart from the culture. And so I don't know if they stood more apart from the culture necessarily, but they stood more apart from the American nation state by World War II, by the Cold War, by Vietnam. You've got a figure like Henry Sloan Coffin, the, who's a descendant of William Sloan Coffin, one of these enthusiastic ministers in World War I. Henry Sloan Coffin at Yale is, you know, people burn their draft cards and stuff. I mean, he's kind of publicly using his influence to oppose Vietnam. If you look at our most recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you're going to find little to no support among mainline church leadership in the United States for these things. And so um, I think the most consequential legacy long-term for the American mainline churches was a strong reaction against 
the God and country rhetoric against the Christian nationalism and a much more of a retreat into a sense that the United States is not uniquely virtuous, that there are multiple stories to every or multiple sides to every story, um, that war and injury and violence is wrong in general, and that it's basically like Vietnam, it's very ethically ambiguous, and so that move toward human rights that we kind of started the conversation today talking about the value of human life, I think that really goes up for those for those groups, um, as well as your support from Native Americans. Yeah, I don't hear Onward Christian Soldier on the radio much these days, <laughs> but um, right. I have I have one last question for you, Ben, and this one's, uh, it's trivial, but it's it's interesting to me. So you wrote two monographs in a year. For the rest of the academic- <laughs> Well, they, they were published in a year. <laughs> wow, that's still, it's a huge accomplishment. For the rest of the book writing world and the academic community, please tell us how you managed to do that. <laughs> well- Never waste any research you did. <laughs> that's kind of that's part of it. Again, the start was a master's thesis, a doctoral dissertation. And then I had two years of postdoc at Notre Dame where I did, you know, very little teaching and was able to focus on revisions to this book and then starting the Theodore Roosevelt book that we dialogued back um, or dialogued about several months ago. Um, yeah, I mean, look, this is all the re most of the research is in English. It's Modern America, a lot of these, yeah, it's it's our it's archival for sure. But there's also a lot of digitized archives. There's a lot of use of um, Happy Trust and being able to just go back and look through these digitized periodicals. But the nature of my research hasn't to, hasn't been weeks in an archive in a distant location. Yes, there's archival stuff in here and in the TR book, um, but just because of the nature of what I've been writing about, it's been pretty easy to to access. So. Um, I recommend, um, I'll give a shout out to my friend and Professor Tommy Kidd, um, who does a newsletter. He's a historian, he's written tons of things, um, but he his newsletter typically focuses on productivity and he's got all kinds of um, tips for his, his goal is always to write a thousand words a day. And so just to keep doing small chunks and I don't do the thousand word a day. I think I teach a four four load here at Taylor. I don't do anything really research wise in the fall and in the spring. But using the opportunities you have, try not to get away from writing for so long that you've forgotten where you are and it takes you a week to get back into it. Um, if you're able to do those things and everybody's life circumstances are different, but if you're able to do those things um, and you don't write huge books either, these are pretty short books, <laughs> you're able to do more. <laughs> ben, you're very modest. It is a huge accomplishment to get these two books out. Um, they are changing the dial on, on our thinking about things. And I can't thank you enough for joining me again to talk about American Crusade. It's, it's a really great read. And, and thank you so much again for coming on. Well, thank you, Mike. It's, uh, you're doing a great service for the profession through this podcast. I've enjoyed listening to other episodes. And uh, yeah, it's great to be on here and talk about it with you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.